The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll remain standing with me, we'll read our passage for this evening, which is found in Exodus. We're continuing our study of Exodus, Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13, and our sermon text for this evening is going to be verses 1 through 16. Verses 1 through 16 of Exodus 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. And then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall you uh, shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which He swore to your fathers to give you. A land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me. When I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you. You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons shall you shall redeem. And when the time comes that your sons ask you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray again and ask his blessing upon us this evening. Our majestic... Heavenly Father, we come to you, O Lord, and we pray that you would illuminate your word this evening to us. As we have already asked you, Father, we plead with you now again. Show us Christ. Show us your goodness and your love towards your people here. 
encourage our hearts, and spur us on to obedience, we pray. In Christ's matchless name, amen. Well, I wonder if you've heard this phrase before. Many of you, I'm sure, have. Remember, remember the 5th of November. Uh, Not that long ago, in the United Kingdom, they celebrated a holiday. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, actually. A holiday called Guy Fawkes Day. Have any of you heard of Guy Fawkes Day before, I wonder? Uh, Guy Fawkes Day is an interesting holiday. It's a holiday that celebrates a, a remarkable thing that took place in the history of Great Britain. If you know anything about the history of Great Britain, you know that after the period of the Reformation, uh, Protestant kings and queens reigned in England, with the exception of Mary. Uh, But there were many who desired to return the kingdom to Roman Catholic domination. Some of these went so far as to plot against the king. Indeed, In the year 1605, a group of men got together and concocted what has come to be known throughout history as the Gunpowder Rebellion. Uh, These group of Roman Catholic rebels uh, had a plan, and their plan was that whenever Parliament was in session and the king was in the Parliament, that they would blow the Parliament up by stuffing the basement of the building with gunpowder. It's really a, a rather... James Bond villain-like plan that they had there. But in God's providence, uh, others got wind of this attempted coup. And on November the 5th, uh, British uh, spies found in the basement of the parliament Guy Fox, one of these conspirators guarding the gunpowder. And the plot was foiled And from that day on, 1605, to just a few weeks ago, in the United Kingdom, they celebrate Guy Fawkes Day. They burn an effigy of Guy Fawkes. They set off fireworks. They do all kinds of things that are kind of strange to the American eyes and ears. But it's a remarkable thing that they do. What they do is they seek to celebrate this wonderful act, really, of God's deliverance of the kingdom from these Roman Catholic rebels who sought to reimpose the darkness and the superstition of Romanism on the United Kingdom. Remember, remember. In some ways, that's the theme of our sermon today as well. You see what Guy Fawkes Day does for the United Kingdom. The Feast of Unleavened Bread and the redemption of the firstborn did for the people of Israel. You see the whole purpose of of these institutions that we're seeing laid out before us here, these ceremonies, these celebrations, these old covenant holy days, was so that the people of God would remember the wonderful works of God in history. It was to prevent them from doing what we're all so prone to do, which is forgetting the goodness of God towards his people. You see, what our passage is really seeking to explain to us this evening is really remarkable, and it's something that has application for us today just as much as it did for them then. You see, the passage is telling us that God's covenant people must commemorate his wonderful works 
And in this passage, they must do so by remembering his claim of consecration and his acts of deliverance and redemption. That's how we're going to look at the text this evening with these three headings. First, in verses 1 and 2, we're going to see that God's people must remember his claim of consecration that he has placed upon the firstborn. As we move from that passage or that section of the text to uh, verses 3 through 10, uh, we'll see that God's people must remember his acts of deliverance, which he worked for his people when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And then thirdly, we're going to see that we must, as God's people, in verses 11 through 16, remember God's act of redemption, which he worked when he redeemed the firstborn of Israel during this, the, the Passover and the, the plague of the death of the firstborn children in Egypt. And as we reflect upon these things, I think it should become fairly obvious to us how this passage, which may at first glance look very obscure and somewhat unapplicable to Christians living in the New Covenant, is actually very important and it's packed with lessons for us as Christians today as we live in the lights of God's even greater acts of redemption which he has worked towards us in Jesus Christ. Well, let's look then as we begin to consider the text at verses 1 and 2 and see uh, God's people being called to remember his claim of consecration. Uh, Verse 1 starts with the Lord speaking to Moses. Now, this is an important thing to note. We see here in the first two verses, it's the Lord speaking. In verse 3, it changes, and it will be Moses speaking on behalf of God to the people for the rest of the passage. But here, we see the direct words of the Lord to Moses. And what does Moses say? Or what does the Lord say to Moses? He says, verse 2, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast. Now, This would be seemingly strange to us if we hadn't uh, just a a few verses previously as we've witnessed uh, the act of the Passover back in chapter 12, seen what God has done. You see, God has redeemed, and that's going to be made even more clear in our third point this evening in verses 11 and following. But for uh, for the sake of this point, though, it is important for us to note that God has redeemed the firstborn of Israel. Remember what took place uh, just a little while ago in the Passover. Uh, God has come and he has visited the land of Egypt, all of the land of Egypt, with a plague. The plague in which every firstborn son perished. And there was one exception to that. And that was that the land or the people of Israel were instructed to redeem their firstborn children, their firstborn sons in particular, by slaughtering a lamb, and by spreading the blood over their doorposts. And it's in this context then that the Lord comes and he makes this claim of consecration. He makes this claim that all of these firstborn sons that are still alive because of his grace and mercy towards the people of Israel are to be consecrated, they're to be dedicated, they're to be set apart for him. It's an important principle here, is there not? You see, what God redeems, God consecrates. What God redeems, God owns. As 
speak more about that in just a moment. But notice what else the passage tells us here. It tells us that they're to redeem not only the men, but also the beast. There's a, there's a fairly large scope here, is there not? You see, they're supposed to remember God's mercy not only to them as he saved their sons, but even as he saved their animals. There's a sense in which this is a comprehensive claim of consecration that God has put upon the people of Israel. It's interesting. We could contemplate together, and we will just briefly, what exactly it meant for these sons to be consecrated. Uh, Commentators are divided on this, and it's an interesting thing to note that in Numbers chapter 3, the Lord is going to come and he's going to say, instead of redeeming the firstborn the way that it was laid out here in this passage, he's going to substitute the firstborn sons of God, or firstborn sons of Israel for the Levites. And he's going to consecrate them in specific for his service. And so there's even some who uh, argue that later on in the book of Exodus, when you see references to priests, it may be the case that it's these firstborn who have been consecrated to the work of God that the passage is actually speaking about. I'm not sure that we have enough evidence for that. But nonetheless, it does draw our attention to the fact that when God consecrates someone, he does so for a purpose. And the purpose is that they would serve the Lord. In whatever way that manifested itself here, it is the consistent and constant teaching of Scripture everywhere else that that's the case. When someone is consecrated, they're consecrated for service. I think there's a few things that we can learn here. We've already mentioned one of them. What God redeems, he consecrates. We clearly, we see that, that, that principle applied in many places in Scripture, but in particular, in the New Covenant, we see it applied in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Particularly, if you wanted to turn with me, you could look at verses 19 and 20. That's in the context there of Paul warning the Christians against participating in sexual immorality. And he says there in verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, listen to what he says here, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And notice the logic that the Apostle Paul is applying here. He's saying basically what this passage is saying, is he not? What God has redeemed, God owns. And what God has redeemed is to be consecrated for his use. Therefore, the application to the Christian is clear. You have been saved by God, and you have been saved, redeemed by him through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. For what purpose? For the purpose of living godly in Christ Jesus before the Lord. You've been redeemed, and you've been consecrated, and now the Lord has consecrated you. He owns you for his use. We have become servants of the Lord instead of servants of Pharaoh. But I think there's another thing going on here that would be helpful for us to see, even as we emphasize this idea of consecrated for service, we should also see the order in which these things come. And with this I'll be done. I've spoken longer than I wanted to on my first point anyway, but it is significant to note what comes first here. 
It's not the imperative that comes first. It's not that they are consecrated so that they can be redeemed. Rather, they were redeemed and now they are to be consecrated. They have been saved and it's out of that position of being saved, being redeemed by the Lord that the people then are to go and to live in light of that reality. To confuse that would be to confuse the gospel. It's important to see the flow, the logic of salvation, even here in the case of the firstborn sons. But more about the consecration of the firstborn later when we get to verses 11 and following. But we begin here to study together verse 3, and we see, as we've already noted, that transition from God speaking to Moses speaking. And we see here, opening up verse 3, this command, which is so important to the text before us. Verse 3 says this, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord has brought you out from this place. No leaven shall be eaten today. And then, well, we'll stop there for a moment. You see, you see as we come to, to verse 3, uh, that Moses is telling the people, he's cluing them in on the importance of what he's about to tell them. And he's doing so with that command, that statement that he makes there. Remember this day. And so we can divide, really, all the verses here from 3 to 10 into two categories. Verses which apply to the regulation of the remembrance of the works of God and the acts which they are meant to remember. We see that pretty clearly here. Verse 3 starts off with a reminder of what they are to remember. Remember this day what? How the Lord has delivered them. And then it transitions to one of the regulations that is going to accompany this feast. No leavened bread shall be eaten. And then he moves on in verse 4 to tell them the time in which they are to observe this feast. They're to observe the feast in the same month in which they have been delivered. And they are to, they are to observe that feast, verse 5, when the Lord brings them into the promised land which he swore to their fathers. We see a number of things that are important here. We notice the time, and that is extremely important. That's one of the things, by the way, that links the redemption of the firstborn together uh, with what we're reading about here as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You see, they were both meant to take place in the springtime, which is significant, particularly for the redemption of the firstborn, because that's the time in which animals were typically going to be born. Uh, But Other than just establishing the time in which the people of God were to observe this act of remembrance, we also see here, apart from how they are to do so, slipped in an assurance, do we not? Look at what the Lord has done for the people here in verse 5. He slips it in here. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. And notice what the Lord is doing. He's reminding them 
he's assuring them, even as he's giving them these rules and these regulations for the observance of this ceremony, he's reminding them of where they are headed. You see, Moses appears to be giving this command to the people on the very day in which the Lord is bringing them out of Egypt. And here, even in the midst of God's acts of deliverance, he's reminding them that he is being faithful to them now, yes, but that he is going to continue to be faithful to them. He's reminding them of his covenant faithfulness to his people. We'll see that in both of these sections. They both uh, have elements which remind the people that the Lord will not only deliver them from Egypt, but continue to be faithful to them until he brings them into the land that he has promised. So, so we note these things, but we turn to verses 8 through 10, and there we see, if you will, the act remembered, or you could even say the rationale for the ceremonies which had been laid out before us, the feast which had been laid out before us. You know, verse 8 starts, You shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Now, the presupposition here seems to be that as the people of Israel are perhaps living in the land that the Lord has promised to give them, and they're observing all of these things that the Lord has called them to observe, you can imagine little kids ask questions, do they not? And you can imagine them sitting there and saying, Dad, why can't we have any leaven? What's the purpose of this? Why do we have to observe this strange ritual, this feast? Why? And as the son was to ask that question, you can imagine the father coming and taking that opportunity to tell his son what the Lord has done for him. And that's the whole purpose, is it not? Because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And then he continues, And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand, as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. Several things that we can unpack here. You note that the purpose of this remembrance is both to remind the people of Israel of what, the God, what God has done for them in the past, and it's to encourage them to covenant faithfulness in the future. It is first to point them backwards to the great act of redemption that the Lord has wrought in the Exodus. And it's also to inform the new generation, which didn't experience these things, what God has done for his people. As they wonder about these things, their parents come and tell them, the reason we do this is because what God has done for us in the past. And they have an opportunity, a teaching opportunity, to come alongside and to to catechize their children, to teach them about the Lord and about his goodness to his covenant people, about his covenant faithfulness. But it also calls them then, as the feast app, 
axe as a memorial between their eyes, as a sign on their hands. It calls them to have the law of the Lord in their mouth. See, as they reflect upon what God has done for them, they are called not to forget his words, not to forget his law, not to forget his covenants. They are to remember God's acts of deliverance when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they are to let that inform their actions. Remembering the work of the Lord is not just something for the people of of Israel to do, is it, brothers and sisters? It's something that we all ought to make a habit of doing. That's why, by the way, we confessed the Apostles' Creed this evening. I forgot to tell uh, Elder Joyner that. But it's important for us to put before ourselves the works of the triune God and our salvation, is it not? Because we, just like the people of Israel, even as we read our Old Testament reading and as we have been reading our Old Testament reading, we've been in in a place in Israel's history where we see king after king, we see person after person forgetting Yahweh, forgetting God, forgetting his covenant, forgetting his law, forgetting his stipulations, and forgetting his salvation and his grace towards his people. And friends, we, we can be prone to that as well. How often do we get bogged down in the worries of this life and forget the wonderful works of God on our behalf? We need a reminder to. We need a reminder to. Friends, I would exhort you this evening. Count your blessings. I grew up in a Baptist church. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. It's not a bad practice. It's an important practice. Remember the works of the Lord in delivering his people. Remember the works of the Lord in delivering you. Some of us can probably remember a time where we lived apart from Christ. And we can remember the darkness, the despair, the restlessness of that reality. Remember what the Lord has done, not only for his people, but for you. You know that's what the text says. It's interesting, even as generations of Israelites were to observe this feast. Even those who hadn't personally participated in the Passover, they were supposed to speak these words to their sons. And this is what the Lord did when I came out of Egypt. It's a remarkable statement, not only of the covenant solidarity of God's people, but of the personal applicability of God's redemptive acts to every one of his saints. can note the kindness that God has shown in providing for his people here, even in the midst of his deliverance for them, reminders of what he is going to do for them in the promised land. The Lord has been good to his people here, providing an opportunity for them to remember. That's the remembrance of his deliverance. But as we go from verse 10 to verse 11, Uh, we see uh, a transition from uh, the regulations and uh, the the topic of the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, to the regulations 
of uh, the, the, the redemption of the firstborn sons. Verse 11 begins again with a reminder of God's goodness and faithfulness towards his people. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites. It's almost like he keeps reminding them. That's where we're going. I promise. We're going to get there. Might not look like it now. We're going to get there. When he brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you. You can see the emphasis there. You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn man among your sons you shall redeem. And when, in time, when the time comes and your son asks you, well, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Again, we see the same basic pattern that we saw with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We see these verses uh, either describe the regulations for the remembrance of this activity of God in the redemption of the firstborn, or they point us back to the act of God's redemption itself. It starts, as we noted already, with another reminder of God's future faithfulness to his people. Uh, But then it moves to give these regulations, regulations for the redemption of the firstborn son and of donkeys. That, by the way, was the first thing I noticed about this passage. I was like, what's going on with the donkeys? Uh, Apparently, in that day, uh, donkeys were the most expensive uh, of the unclean animals that would have necessarily been uh, sacrificed. So uh, there's an option here, again, the Lord being gracious, that you can sacrifice a lamb, which is much cheaper, and save your firstborn donkey. So if you were wondering about the donkeys, I was as well. So he gives us the instructions here. Redemption of the firstborn son requires the death of a lamb. Of course, this mirrors what we saw in the actual act of God's deliverance in the Passover. And even later, as I noted earlier, you'll see uh, there's a a transition here where the Levites take the place of the firstborn sons. And at that point, they require a very similar ceremony to take place to be consecrated. But even after that, the Lord still requires that at the birth of a firstborn son, a certain amount of money be paid to redeem the firstborn son. This is a perpetual reminder to the people of Israel of God's grace towards them. And of course, again, as the people of Israel are reminded in the Feast of Unleavened Bread of God's deliverance from the house of Egypt, here they're reminded of his redemption, of his purchase, of his substitution, of something on behalf of their sons. Of course, we'll discuss that more in just a moment. But it's also interesting to note here, when we parallel these two Uh, events in Israel's history, that there are some similarities, but there are also some differences. But think about this for a moment. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread, 
this would come every year at the same time, and it would come to every single person, right? Now think about that. That's how a, a holy day worked. So everybody corporately would gather together and they would celebrate this feast and they would be reminded of God's deliverance of them. Uh, but the redemption of the firstborn is not like that. It's not annual. It's sporadic. Well, whenever a firstborn son happens to be born, whether it's in the springtime or the wintertime or the summer, it doesn't matter. This is the procedure for redeeming them. It's sporadic. And note, it's individual as well. It's not corporate so that we don't mistakenly think that God is gracious to his people, but not to us. It's individual and it's sporadic as well as the Feast of Unleavened Bread is corporate and it's annual. You see, God has scattered throughout the life of Israel reminders of his goodness towards them. I mean, hardly a week goes by at this congregation that we don't see a baby born. And we would be sacrificing lambs left and right. You know what that's like to live in a community like that and to be constantly reminded, think of that, to be constantly reminded as a family what the Lord has done for you when he passed over this child. When he passed over this child because of the blood of a lamb. Of course, the application to us is not difficult to see, and the application to Christ is obvious here, is it not? See, Christ is spoken of as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of his people. Is he not? This is the the principle that's being demonstrated to us here. Just as we see the firstborn being redeemed by the blood of the Lamb here in this Old Covenant stipulation, this festival, this this act of consecration, not festival. So today, we see more perfectly that God has provided for us. He has provided for us a spotless Lamb, a perfect substitute, one who has redeemed His people has redeemed not only the firstborn, but every single one of us who needs redemption. Those, all of us who were born in sin and in misery. Every single one of us, as we have spoken of so many times in the book of Exodus, are alienated from our God. We are far from God by our sinful nature. And every single one of us needs someone to bring us back to our Father. Every single one of us needs someone to step up and to take our place. And we need someone to shed their blood for our sake. The Lord Jesus Christ did that for us. For God's people. You see, this imagery that we see laid out here, both in the feast, but specifically, I think, and most pointedly in the redemption of the firstborn, it looks backwards to the Exodus. There's no doubt about that. That's what the text tells us. But it doesn't just look backwards, does it? It looks forward. It looks forward to one who would come and to who would do these things more perfectly. 
It looks forward to a time where God's people wouldn't depend on types, wouldn't depend on shadows, wouldn't depend on circumcision and the Passover and all of these various things that God gave His people in the Old Covenant to show us He loves us and He is committed to redeeming us. But rather, we can look, friends, and they could look forward then to the coming of one who would do this perfectly. And who would do this finally, completely? There would never be another. There would never be another because there was never a need for another. Because the Lord Jesus Christ has done exactly what we needed. This feast pointed them forward. This exercise of redeeming the firstborn, it pointed them forward. And even as we look back at it, it points us to what God has done for us. It points us to what God has done for us, and it serves the same function for us this evening as we contemplate it as it did for them. It reminds us of God's goodness to us. Corporately, yes. Individually, yes. Perfectly, yes. It points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, he again ends in verse 16 with this statement that it is, here speaking of the redemption of the firstborn, it is to be a mark on our hand, frontless between our eyes. It's to be a reminder, an ever-present reminder, that the Lord has, by a strong hand, brought his people out of Egypt. And as we look at this text this evening, it is a reminder to us that God, with a strong hand, has delivered us from our sin and our misery. It's a beautiful thing we see here, as it points us forward to the redemptive work of our Savior. As it it teaches us about God's ultimate act of redemption. The Lamb of God spilled his blood to cover our sin and to deliver us from his wrath and to consecrate us for his service to the end of his glory. This is where this passage is pointing us this evening. So I would say to you, remember. Remember what the Lord has done. Remember what he has done and live in light of these marvelous works of our Lord's in redemption. He has indeed been good to us as he has worked salvation for us. And the Christian then is to be one, even as the people of Israel of old were to be. We are to be those who remember what God has done, who never forget the claim of consecration that he's put on our life, who never forget the acts of redemption and deliverance that he's performed on our behalf. Indeed, the Lord has given us similar blessings as he gave them here, has he not? The last Lord's Day, we took the Lord's Supper the Lord's Supper does much of the same thing that these feasts, that this redemption did in that day. It first causes us to meditate upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It causes us to remember what he has done. 
But friends, it also points us forward, does it not? It points us forward to a day where we will eat it again with him in his kingdom. And friends, as we look back at the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and as we're reminded of how these old covenant saints were called to look back, friends, I don't want to forget to tell you to look forward. Even as we, like they, struggle in the wilderness, even as we sojourn in this age, let us always be reminded of what God has done, but also of what God is doing as he delivers us to our heavenly promised land. Friends, let us then go forth even this evening, even this evening, remembering that God has set us apart, that God has delivered us, and that God has redeemed us by the blood of our Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, as we have heard from your word of the wonderful things that you have done for your people in the Old Covenant, and as we have been reminded of the glorious works of salvation that you have brought about for us, we pray, O Father, that you would bring these things to the forefront of our minds, that they would be as frontlets between our eyes, that they would be upon our hands that they would be sunk deep in our hearts, and that we would never be those who forget your goodness towards us. And we pray even now, Lord, that you would encourage us as we pilgrim on this earth, that we journey towards a promised land, and that you have assured us, O Father, that one day you will deliver us from the pain, from the misery, and from the light and momentary afflictions of this age into your kingdom so that we might behold our Savior and enjoy that blessed vision for all eternity. We pray, O Father, that you would remind us of these things as we leave here and as we go throughout our week, that we might live lives of earnest consecration towards you. Use us, we pray, for your kingdom and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.